happened when people encountered Jesus? One thing is for sure, no one stayed the same. Skeptics, outcasts, politicians, and religious leaders alike all had strong reactions to him. Some walked away, but some believed. And in those lives, we see the hand of God filling in who they were meant to be. We see the rough outline of their lives given color and shape and form and made into something altogether unique and new and beautiful. No one who ever encountered Jesus was ever the same. For each one, it all started the same way. Meeting him face to face. Welcome this morning. Yeah, uh, love that video and what it means and where it's taking us. Um, I was just so impressed this week. I know many of you fasted and, and prayed and spent the week doing that. And I just was so, again, impressed to, to share how grateful I am to be here with you, to know you, to love you, serve you in whatever way I can, we can. And I hope that I never forget, we never forget what a privilege it is to be called by God, to love him. And for me to be able to communicate God's word is an extraordinary privilege. Glad to be here with you today. Our first encounter in this new series is from the book of John, chapter 1. The title of this is called Come and See. It's taken from John, chapter 1, various selected verses. Here we go, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 35, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent their day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you. While you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's God's word this morning. The book of John. At a moment in time in history... Everything changed. In one moment, one word, we're about to find out, was fired across the bow of history, of philosophy, 
of psychology, and in that moment, culture itself creaked, groaned, and changed. This one word is found in the first verse of John chapter 1. Now, we read the word as word, but it was far more than that. The Greek word for our word, word, is the word logos. And here's what it meant 2,000 years ago. The ancient Greeks of that day believed there existed a kind of moral and beautiful and rational life that ought to be lived, a way life ought to be lived to its fullest, and it was called the logos. It was impersonal, but discernible. A well-told story was about the Logos, they believed. A well-lived life pointed and would be in accordance with the Logos. Anything truly beautiful and truly true would be about this unknowable Logos. Philosophers spent their whole lives trying to figure it out. The common citizen strained to live his life in accordance with the Logos. And then... One man from Galilee came along. His name was Jesus. And the gospel writer John, who was a follower and friend of this Jesus, saw Jesus' life and what he did and said, the Logos isn't an unknowable idea. The Logos isn't an abstract concept. The Logos isn't unknowable. It's now become knowable. It's now become flesh and blood. John was saying, in other words, here in his chapter, first chapter of his gospel, it is now possible to have an encounter with perfection itself, with beauty itself, with the great story itself. See, French philosopher Luke Ferry, who is not a Christian, said of using this word in this way, in this moment of time, he said, for Greek thought, the idea that the logos could designate anything other than the rational, therefore true, therefore beautiful, order of the universe was unthinkable. In their eyes, to claim that a mere mortal could constitute the logos was insanity. The Romans did not hold back from massacring Christians on account of this intolerable deviance. For this was a time when ideas were not playthings. What exactly was at issue in this apparently innocent change in the meaning of a single word? The answer, nothing less than a revolution in the definition of divinity. Now you ask, well, how could this be? And is it true? Well, to quote one person in the same passage we just read, when he was asked if it was true, let me say to you these same words this morning. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see if the ideal, the real, the true, the beautiful has become real. And if so, if he has how we can encounter him today. We will come and see John's claim this morning. In the first encounter, Jesus has immediately after John's claim in this passage with a skeptic named Nathaniel. We're going to see the story through his eyes today. We'll see Nathaniel's first problem, then poverty, and finally, prescription. Prescription. Let's begin here, number one, and look at Nathaniel's problem. He's got a problem, as we're going to see. In verse 45, his friend Philip found him and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. So what's happening here? Well, essentially there are a group of students hanging out. Group of students hanging out. In that day, there were no universities, and so if you wanted to be a student, you would essentially attach yourself to a teacher. Perhaps the edgiest teacher of that day was a man named John the Baptist, who for you, if you're new, the different John, a lot of folks named John in that day, different John and the writer of this passage. And this man, John the Baptist, was a teacher who would essentially show up for class not wearing a whole lot and eating bugs. And you thought your philosophy teacher was weird. 
In John's class, John taught that a person the Jews had awaited for centuries, a person who would come save their nation and heal the world, a person called the Messiah, was now here and now real. And some of John's students believed him, but one in particular was skeptical. His name was Nathaniel, as we've seen him. He was skeptical because he had a problem. What was this problem? It was this. Nathaniel was an intellectual snob, an intellectual snob, and maybe even a bigot. Picture this. Nathaniel's friend Philip comes up to him and says, I want you to meet this new rabbi, the one about whom the whole region is buzzing. His name is Jesus. He may be the Messiah. He may be the answer to all of our hearts, hopes, and our nation's longing. And he's from a place called Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel do? Oh, he sneers, right? He sneers, Nazareth. Nothing good can come from there. Now, why would he say that? Well, Jews, like Nathaniel, grew up in Jerusalem and therefore looked down on Jews from Galilee like Jesus. Galilee was a region which held the city of Nazareth and it was seen as poor and uneducated in his day. In other words, Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah as he was from the wrong side of the tracks, right? Nathaniel rolls his eyes when Jesus is mentioned. Why? Well, the same reason people today roll their eyes because there are always the right kind of people from whom the answers come and the wrong kind of people. There are always the so-called smart, right? The so-called capable people and then there are the stupid people. And Nathaniel is doing what we all do, what our culture still does today. At many levels, we want others to think of us as capable and rational and intelligent and informed and what we do to seek and establish this kind of identity is not often to dialogue, right? Or to think through it, but through ridicule and mockery. In other words, today we see this. Republicans aren't just mistaken. They're unsophisticated, unenlightened racists. And anyone who would vote for them is an idiot. Democrats aren't just mistaken or off. They are demonic and evil incarnate. And anyone who would vote for them is an idiot. Nathaniel couldn't believe that the truth could come from there or look like that. And perhaps you're doing this today with Jesus or Christianity or maybe even the church. Maybe you grew up with Jesus or Christianity or faith of the church. You've decided it's not for you. You're only here today because a friend of yours drug you here. Great. Good for them. Our culture still loves to roll its eyes at Christianity, doesn't it? And the person of Jesus, even the church. See, still today, faith, Jesus, Christianity, the church, it's still from Nazareth. What good thing can come from there? So this is your attitude today. Let me just offer you two suggestions. First of all, eye-rolling is dangerous. There's a marriage counselor named Tara Parker Pope in her book on marriage called For Better, The Science of a Good Marriage, cites eye-rolling as one of the definitive signs a relationship is in trouble. There's your free marriage counseling today. All right, we're moving on. That's it. You're one, one shot there. The point is, if you're... Here in your eye-rolling Jesus, your eye-rolling Christianity, you're actually in more trouble than you think because now your ability, hear this, to possibly maintain a relationship with something that could be true is in jeopardy. But the second issue is this, and it's bigger. If you're skeptical like Nathaniel, your problem is, your main problem is, may I suggest to you, because I will, you cut off, you're cutting off your own thinking and your own values at the knees. What do I mean? I mean this. Most of the greatest ideas, most of the values we hold dearest today, even values the greatest skeptic holds the most dear, originated in Christianity. Let me ask you, should we have a peaceful society 
or a violent one? I mean, do you like seeing beheadings in the Middle East? Of course, no, right? Christianity said before anyone, love and forgive your enemies, don't kill them. Let me ask you, do people, all people, have dignity and rights? Even the poorest and most insignificant. Should we kill and abandon those who can't help society in some way? Or should we love and serve them? Now, Luke Ferry, again, he argues that without Christianity's teaching that the Logos was a person, he said the philosophy of human rights, again, he's not a Christian, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. Now, you may say, man, I can believe in those ideas, uh, ideas, you know, peace, love, all that, without believing in Jesus. And, you know, I'll admit it's partly true, but it's short-sighted and disingenuous. How so? Like this. Give me about three minutes. I'm going to circle back around. The book of Genesis in the Old Testament, first book there, if nothing else, is a window into ancient cultures. And what we see there, by the way, isn't pretty if you've never read it. There's polygamy, the practice of multiple marriages. There's bride price, fathers selling their daughters for money. There's patriarchy, men in charge of everything. And there's primogeniture, the practice of favoring the eldest son to the detriment of all the other children in the family. These were all widespread and unquestioned. That's just the way things were done. Then the Bible comes along, and now at every fork in the road at every point where God chooses to use someone and to move. It's always the younger son over the older one. It's always Abel over Cain, always Jacob over Esau, always Isaac over Ishmael. It's David over all his brothers. I mean, after a while, it's like a joke. I mean, you can see the punchline in the Bible coming. See, it's never the wise one, never the good looking one. Some you can say, praise the Lord. All right. It's never the one you'd expect. I'll say it for myself. It's never the one, see, from Jerusalem. It's always the one from Nazareth. The place or the person you wouldn't expect. And of course, God works this way with women too. There are despised women, unloved women, ugly women. But God always chooses them to bless, them to lift up, them to use. It's old Sarah over young Hagar. It's Leah over beautiful sister Rachel. It's barren Hannah over fertile Penina. The Bible, see, isn't supporting polygamy, patriarchy, primogeniture. It's undoing them. It's undoing them. And if you never thought of it like that, let me just suggest you, you learn how to read narrative a little more closely. See, it's always through the people or the place no one ever wants and everyone always looks down on. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Now, you may be saying, well, that's nice, Morgan. Christianity favors the underdog. I'd like that, but... The parts about hell, heaven, the wrath of God, the justice of God, a sacrifice, man, blood, I don't like. Well, hear me. Those parts, the parts you don't like, about the justice of God, the need for a sacrifice, the reality that the eternal future of every life is at stake, are at Christianity's center, not periphery. They're right at the heart of it, not on the outside. In other words, the things you don't like are what drive and support and give weight to the parts that you maybe like. Jesus didn't come to be a nice person, to show us a nice way to live and give us some nice teachings about justice, the poor, and the underdog. No, he came to upend every religious system, every philosophical system, which always says this, you got to find God for yourself. Find truth on your own through one way or another. But here is the radical truth of Christianity, which offended the Greeks, outraged the Romans, and flew over Nathaniel's head. Christianity said, you can never 
find God on your own. God has to come and find you. The planet is so bad. God's got to come himself and do something about it. And Jesus Christ came, therefore, and died on the cross to satisfy the just wrath of God, to bring the world back together. Christianity says we're not saved by a teaching or an idea, no, but by a person, see, who gave his perfect life for us. And therefore, every other idea here, it's coming around, justice, living for love, forgiving your enemies instead of beheading them, these flow directly out of one life and one act we call the gospel, that God has done for you which you can never do for yourself. It's intellectually dishonest, therefore, to acknowledge that your deepest convictions are from Christianity without accepting the peace and the place that made it real from the beginning. A few years ago, when I was a full-time campus missionary at the University of Texas, I met a girl named Julia. Julia was a skeptical but brilliant and beautiful philosophy major who was also a stripper. Met Julia out on campus and challenged her, like Philip challenged Nathaniel, to come and see. And so she did. For the next few months, she came back many times with her other stripper friends. And they sat in the back of the room in the meeting, drinking beer out of red Solo cups. Her friends would fall asleep on me, but she stared me down week after week. And one night, after considering the claims in the person of Jesus, she responded and surrendered her life to him. And that night, let me tell you, she changed. When she lifted her head, her eyes were filled with tears. And I'll never forget it. Her face was shining. She said quietly, she said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. She went home. She quit her job, started sharing what had happened to her with her friends and family. Impacted her mother so much. Her mother became a Christian as well. She didn't let her problem, see, her skepticism, her bias, keep her away from Jesus. And interestingly enough, in the end, neither, thankfully, did Nathaniel. After all, when Philip says to him, come and see, he doesn't say, man, forget it. No. Here he is, a total skeptic, part-time bigot, but he goes in the end. Why? Why does he go? Well, let's look. Number two, we'll see he's got a kind of poverty to him. Kind of poverty. Verse, we'll see it in this little narrative script here. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip calls you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I mean, one minute, he's a total skeptic. The next he's saying, oh, Jesus, you're the son of God and the king of the world. Why does this happen? Well, the same reason, I believe, my friend Julia began to follow Jesus and the same reason I've seen hundreds of people and students with varying levels of skepticism come to faith in Christ over my time here in Austin, despite people telling me when I moved here, you shouldn't go there. No one wants to hear about Jesus in Austin or or UT. It's so liberal and, you know, godless and all that kind of stuff. But yet, people have come. They've come and seen and been changed. Why? Because underneath the skepticism was and is a lot of very honest soul-searching for the big answers to life that's going on, just like in Nathaniel's life. Nathaniel here is a young Jewish man, consider the day of his. Like many other young Jewish men in his day, he was struggling with who he was. His nation had come in and been conquered. They were being oppressed and under the heel and the boot of the Roman Empire. Terrible, horrible things had happened to him. Likely his family and his nation. Every person in his day asked what many of you Maybe asking today, if God is real and he loves me, why has this happened? Why has this happened? Why have these tragic things happened to my loved ones? God, I've seen too much. I can't believe. 
But here's the thing. Even though Nathanael had grown skeptical of God's love and for his nation, he didn't believe God was at work to deliver them. None of the other answers he was being given were working for him either. See, Nathaniel, like many of us, had a real spiritual and intellectual poverty in his life. He was skeptical about Jesus, but he had no real answers on the other hand either. Which is why when someone says, come and see, he's willing to say, all right, I'll give the guy from Nazareth a shot. One skeptic from a generation ago who got no real answers from his friends or the intelligentsia of his day was a poet named W.H. Auden. Auden moved to Manhattan, New York in 1939. He was successful as a writer and he had previously abandoned his faith in God even though his father and grandfather were ministers as had most of his friends. But after World War II broke out, he changed his mind and shocked many of his friends and lost most of them by becoming a Christian. What happened to him? Well, the Nazis did. Nazis did. At first, Auden believed, like many today, you could believe in right and wrong, believe in, you know, good and bad without having to believe in God or having to put your faith in Christ. But then when details of the Holocaust began to emerge, Auden searched his soul and wrote this. He said, if I am convinced that the highly educated Nazis are wrong and that we highly educated English are right, What is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? The English intellectuals who now cry to heaven against the evil incarnated in Hitler have no heaven to cry to. The whole trend of liberal thought has been to undermine faith in the absolute. It has tried to make reason the judge. He concludes like this. Either we will serve the unconditional God or some Hitlerian monster will supply an iron convention to do evil by. Fast forward to today. What we see in the Middle East, obviously. See, Jesus for Auden at first was just from Nazareth. But when Auden began to protest the evil he saw in the world, he began to realize something. He began to realize his own protest was cut off at the knees and useless. He believed in justice. Oh, he believed in human rights. He believed that the brutality of those in power toward the weak was wrong. But then he asked himself, why? Why? He realized he'd been making up right and wrong out of thin air. He believed in natural selection. We said that the fundamental principle of the world always has been, always will be, that the strong eat the weak. The strong eat the weak. That's just the way it is. That's how we got here. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's true, if it's just true that the strong eat the weak, why do we turn around now and say, it's wrong for strong nations to eat weak ones. It's wrong for strong corporations to gobble up little people. Why can we say, or or can we say, that churches ought not to steal money, Those in power ought not to abuse authority. And that slavery was wrong. How can we say that? Don't the strong just eat the weak? See, Auden realized all the things he really believed in could only be real if there was a God from whom right and wrong flowed. If God wasn't real, he couldn't say anything was really right or really wrong. Auden knew, therefore, though, At the right people in his day, the cool people of his day, those from Jerusalem, see, the popular actors and actresses and thinkers and celebrities, many of whom were his friends, would laugh at him, and they did. Auden's story reminds me of a story of a friend of mine named Jim. Jim was a popular baseball player here at UT Austin. He was also a psychology major and deeply skeptical of any faith system due not only to his studies, but also to his background as a magician. He was an illusionist. Jim, you can make anything look the way you wanted to, and how easy it was to deceive people. Jim's life spiraled downward, however, after he blew out his arm playing baseball. And finally, after a friend of his became a Christian, he was asked to come to this church 
And he did. He was so drunk on the way in from the night before partying out on 6th Street, he threw up in the parking lot before he hit the door. But that day, he felt something in the worship that touched him. He felt something real in the words that were shared. And he responded that day and gave his heart to Jesus. Now, he's a full-time minister. He's an illusionist who travels the world and performs in front of thousands of college students and skeptics, sharing how Jesus punctured his skepticism. See, when he came to Christ, his friends mocked him. His professors, Jim's professors, they ridiculed him. But he told me later, they weren't giving him any real answers, see, any more than what W.H. Auden got. So Jim did in 1999 what Auden did in 1940 and what Nathaniel does right here. He opened himself up to Jesus. He believed the Logos changed him. In all these people's lives, their poverty, their search for real answers drew them to Jesus. And let me just encourage you, if you're here today, if you're new, if you'll have the same kind of courage today, same can be true of you as well. If you'll see what Jesus in his face-to-face encounter gives Nathaniel right here, number three, finally, Nathaniel's prescription. Jesus gives a prescription When Nathanael walks up to Jesus, of course, what does Jesus say to him? He said, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is so beautiful. I know you, Nathanael. You're direct. You're abrasive. The reason you're always having to hang out with Philip is because nobody else will hang around you. You're a straight shooter, and I love you. I approve of you. I see to the bottom of who you are, and I'm glad You're like that. Of course, Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Again, another question from a skeptic, but the tone's changed a bit here. Nathaniel is softening. Why? Well, because someone understands him. Understands him. Last week, we talked about how no no human being can fully understand you to the bottom of who you are because we're all unique in certain ways. But there are times, aren't there, when a part of us is touched, understood by another. And the awareness in that moment that we are known. When there's a part of us that's understood by another, that's the most significant gift we can give one another. And this is the gift Jesus is giving Nathaniel right here. Nathaniel is feeling known. Oh, he's feeling loved. He's feeling affirmed by Jesus. And he's so moved by this, he's saying, how can this be possible? How can he know me? What does Jesus say? Well, he gives him this mysterious answer that on one hand, proves this is an eyewitness account and on the other shows Jesus to be the Logos, the Messiah. He has supernatural knowledge of Nathaniel's life and actions. He says, know you, Nathaniel, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. Oh, no, the Bible doesn't say what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree there, but whatever he was doing, the point is, was so private, so meaningful to him, And so impossible for any other person to know that no one else could have known him. And yet here it was, the secret of his heart being laid bare. Do you see what's happening? Nathaniel's been skeptical, bigoted, rude towards Jesus. And yet when Jesus meets him, he loves him. He affirms him. Jesus shows he's been thinking good things about Nathaniel, even though Nathaniel's been thinking bad things about him. The same is true for us today. Oh, this rocks Nathaniel to the core. He's understood, loved, affirmed. There's never been anyone like this, has there? See, when you experience his love, it changes you. 
Years ago, Carrie and I had some friends from England who were skeptics of Jesus, and we finally convinced them to come to church here with us one Sunday because a prophet, a prophetic friend of ours, was here. That means a person who's just practiced listening to the voice of God. Now, they're not divine at all. We'll have one here in a few weeks with Jim LaFoon, but they're not divine. They're just a person, but they've practiced listening to the Holy Spirit and can communicate a, a divine message. And my friends came from England, skeptics for decades, and at the end, my friend asked if he could pray for them. And then he began to do for them what Jesus did for Nathaniel. Began to lay the secrets of their heart bare. They began to weep at being known. They surrendered their life to Jesus that day after decades of skepticism. One moment, one encounter with Jesus changed them, see. But Nathaniel's encounter wasn't over. It was just getting going because Jesus doesn't just speak to his inner life here. No, he speaks to his future life that's to come, his journey. Now look at how the encounter concludes. Jesus says, oh, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see even greater things than that. He then added very truly, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Think, what does this mean? Oh, man, what in the world can this mean? It means this. Jesus is saying right here, I am what all the great stories are ultimately about. All the stories in the Old Testament, Nathaniel, you've ever heard about, you grow up reading about, hearing about, they're about me. And Jesus uses one example here to show you what he means. He references a strange story from the book of Genesis about a man named Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob in this story is on the run. He is in the desert. He has betrayed his father and brother. And he falls asleep, dead broke with his head on a rock for a pillow. But that night, he has an incredible dream, Jacob does. It was a kind of a dream of a giant staircase, a stairway, like a bridge coming down from heaven. And on the staircase were angels ascending and descending, going down to earth and back up to heaven. And centuries later now, we see what Jacob's dream really meant. Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, see, I am that staircase. I am the gateway to God, which is what Jacob said when he woke up. He said, oh, the box top of reality is being punched through for a moment. Jacob woke up and said, this is the gateway to God. This is what it looks like when God opens heaven and comes to earth. And this staircase shows that God longs to come and dwell among his people. Oh, and see, Jacob didn't know. He didn't just see a staircase or have a dream. He saw a promise, a promise, a promise that God would one day come and dwell among his people. And Jesus is saying, now, Nathaniel, I tell you, that's me. That's me. I am the means by which God has come and is dwelling among his people. I am the Logos, Nathaniel. I'm the bridge between heaven and earth. The story is about me, Jesus is saying. And church, I'll go one step further this morning and say, not only are all those Old Testament stories about him, but all the great stories you've ever heard your whole life are about him. You know that story about a great beauty, ferocious beast? It's about him. Why do you get so moved when you hear that story? Because it's the idea that sacrificial love saves and transforms every time. But you say, it doesn't always work every time. You're right, it doesn't. But the question still remains, why does it move us so deeply? I'll say it like this. Because it's about him. That story about Sleeping Beauty, you know, the one about the beloved who falls under a spell and is held captive by an evil power until a great hero comes, defeats the dragon, and breaks the spell. Why does it captivate our hearts? Hmm? To see a prince defeating evil, breaking the spell, 
rescuing his beloved. Oh, because it's not really about the prince. It's about him. It's about him. What are all the stories about? They're about a love that must be able to break death, a love that must be able to live forever, about a hero who will come to redeem us and transform us and whose sacrifice can even raise the dead. And Jesus is saying here, oh, no, my story, my birth, my life, what I do, my death and my resurrection are not just another legend pointing to that great reality, but my story is the great reality to which all those other stories and legends point. And therefore, the reason we still keep making movies and shows and writing about these, and we will until the end of the world, is because every heart, no matter how skeptical, longs to get inside that kind of story into the Logos, a world where true love breaks through and wins, where good defeats evil, where spells are broken, and the hero delivers the beloved. So we think, oh, that sounds so beautiful. If only I could get into that story. But Jesus is saying here, you can. You can. Because all those stories are about me. And my story is the great story. I am the great rescuer, he's saying. I am the spell breaker. I will become the beast. Sin itself to turn you into my beauty, see. Oh, I'm the logos, the ultimate story, see. It's now come true. And I'll say to you now what C.S. Lewis said near the end of one of his sermons. He asked his audience this. You think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which is laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. And by that he meant the skepticism of his age. Jesus, can you see, is in effect using a kind of fairy tale language and concept to puncture Nathaniel's worldview. He's bringing him into the full realization of who he is. Church, if God would open heaven to a skeptic of a man like Nathaniel, if he would open heaven to a wretch of a man like Jacob, how much more will he open heaven to you and his heart to you this morning in the person of Jesus as you open your heart to him now? Let's pray as we close. Lord, we come in Jesus' name. Thank you for this encounter. Oh, Jesus, hear the great story come true. And Lord, I'm asking you now to give grace to people to be able to come into your story. In Jesus' name. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Morgan? I want to move into that story, Jesus' story. Make his story mine. I want to give my life to Jesus. Become a follower of Jesus. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Lord, we just thank you for these. And now, Lord, I'm praying right now. Lord, for the saving power of the fairy tale come true. The beast changing us into beauty. Lord, come true for these. If you've raised your hand, would you just pray this prayer with me? You say, Jesus, I come to you now. Surrender my life to you, my rights. All I am, my inner life, my future life, I give to you. And I'm asking you to change me you would make me born again on the inside. I repent of my sin and trust you as the way, the truth, and the life. 
and no one can come to the Father but by you. Amen. I'm praying for these also, Lord, today who are grasping, struggling with their own story like Nathaniel, wondering how, wondering how you can possibly redeem. Lord, I'm praying for these. If that's you, if you're struggling with your own story today, where is it? What's happening? Would you raise your hand? It's okay. Yeah, we all, man, we walk many times in life through valleys. This encounter here shows us the Messiah comes unlooked for. God's still at work, even in dark times. And Lord, I'm praying for these hearts to hold on to hope today. And as your story of redemption flows into them again, they would see you afresh and have strength for the journey. In Jesus' name, amen.